0: Man, I don't know if anybody else could say this, but I needed that. I needed that song. Anybody else? Good stuff. I needed a conversation that took place last night after a wedding at Saturday. So, you know, I got a wedding and I was walking out to my, my truck and someone stopped me. And y'all know it was about 18 degrees. The feel-like temperature was probably 12 or something. I'm not keeping track anymore. But it was just bitter, brutally cold. And someone stopped me and engaged me with the work God was doing in their life. And I just, I just wanted to get in my truck And turn on the heat and go. And then as I stayed there, God gave me the grace. And my heart began to soften as I heard his story of one who was lost and is found. Who had this hard heart and it's softening. And it was cold and now God is warming it. And it just warms me. I know it does you. Uh, Even the most cold hearted among us is moved at times when something that's lost becomes found when something that's dead is brought to life. And that is the heart of the gospel. And hear me for a second, because sometimes churches and organizations and bureaucracies and institutions, though they bring good and order, they can get in the very way ...of what Jesus does and what he wants to do. And that is to take what is lost and make it found. We're in a series that we were calling The Invite. And I'm hoping that you picture in your imagination... ...the arms of your Heavenly Father open wide... ...feeling and wooing and winning you back... ...to those who are lost, to those who have gone astray. We quoted last week from the prophet Isaiah... ...all we like sheep, that's everybody... All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And some of you know this morning that when you turn, when you turn to your own way, to your own selfishness, to your own means and methods, that it's empty. It's very, very empty and it's not working. It's a strategy, hear me, that fails every single time. And our God, the gospel story, let's don't get in the way of this, is his arms open wide. Ed Smart was a father who lived a father's worst nightmare. He walked out on his front steps one day where news reporters, journalists were gathering from all over the country and some even from different parts of the world. And he looked into a throng of microphones and cameras and he said, Elizabeth, if you're out there and you can hear me, we're doing everything we can to find you. And then he spoke to the abductors, and he said, Please, please let her go. Fourteen-year-old Elizabeth Smart, the night before, was abducted from her very own bedroom. Those who captured her, they took her, and for nine months, she was dressed in a wig and disguise, and they were in and around, the entire nine months were in and around their hometown of Salt Lake City, Utah in the wig and in the disguise, they moved around and they ate at restaurants and went to public places where they were never noticed, never known. This gives me chills to say this, but there were a few occasions where she, Elizabeth Smart, and her abductors were in the very same restaurant that her family was in. Experts call it Stockholm Syndrome. Nine months of abduction, of rape, of captivity had literally changed her identity. Where she saw this young teenage girl uh, through this horrible process, she saw her abductors as her actual family. One day, by the way, this week there was a day this week that was Law Enforcement Appreciation Day. Can you just appreciate law enforcement officers and the work that they do? There are some. Serving us on a regular basis, we've beefed up to security in the world that we live in. We have beefed up security recently. Don't you appreciate these men and women who uh, protect us? And there was a law enforcement officer who vaguely noticed this young lady or noticed that it could be her, and he approached her at a busy intersection in Sandy, Utah, just outside of Salt Lake. And as he approached her, he began to ask her questions. She blurted out, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not Elizabeth Smart. He questioned her. He asked her about the wig she was wearing and the couple that she was with, and just a few moments into it, he said, I know who you are. You're lost. You're Elizabeth Smart, and I'm taking you home. He showed her the poster of her, her picture. She looked at it and looked up at him, and with tears in her eyes, she said some very strange sort of King James cultic-type language that the officer almost had to interpret. But essentially what she was saying is, What you say, I will do. It's time to go home. America, you'll remember, you do, don't you? We, probably some of you, you news watchers, we were moved to see this story of someone lost who was returned home. When a relationship is reconciled, it's a good thing, isn't it? God is honored and people are blessed. And in a room full of people, just like we had in the gym at 930, with folks in our balcony, I can tell you, I know, I know there are relationships that need to be reconciled. I know there are lost people in this very room. And whether you're like this young son that we'll look at in the story or the elder brother, we are lost. There are lost among us, and lostness is real. And there is division and brokenness. And my heart is warmed. I know yours is. When we see those who've been alienated come together, before Christmas, I was watching the NBA on TNT, and I was moved by Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas in this relationship. I would say to you, this has been a tremendous day, right? My wife, my mother, my father, and saying y'all need to get back together. Yeah. So when everybody called, I said, No question, we're gonna do this. And just to sit across from you and have those relive those moments of fun, <laughs> excellence, working hard, dreaming big, because we were dreaming of moments before we were even, who, who, who sit up at 19, 20, 21, dreaming of stuff we wanted to do, and now here we are doing it, you know? But you are my brother. Let me apologize to you if I hurt you that we haven't been together and god is good to bring us back together am i right i know man it hurt me too (laughs) come here man It's all good, baby. Okay? It's all good. It's crazy. It's one of those things, like, we had to go through, but we through it, brother. Okay? I'll always be here. Oh, come on, man. I always know. I know. I know. And I'm still mad that you beat me. <laughs> God is good to bring us back together. Those guys, honestly, candidly, like Solomon and David and others in the Bible, man, they partied and they womanized and they kind of did their thing, but they were warriors on the battle on the court of NBA basketball. And they forged this friendship and then ego got in the way to where they didn't even speak for years. Something went wrong. Their friendship was lost in a way their souls were. God is good, he said, to bring us back together. I pray that our stuff of church wouldn't get in the way and that there could be story after story after story in this place. That God is good. He brought us back together. And God is most glorified and we see his goodness the most when, when he brings us back to him. When the lost, when the sheep who go astray are found. We're looking at four stories in this series, The Invite, stories that Jesus told to tell us what God, listen to me, what God is really like. And he told these stories to get past the defenses of religious people. He tells the stories of coins and sheep, sons and daughters, of banquets and excuses, of seeds and soil. Last week we looked at a shepherd who had a hundred sheep but lost one, and he went and he searched and he found and they celebrated. Same thing with a woman, ten coins. She loses one. She blacklights, she she turns on the lights and she gets the blacklight and she scours the home, turning things over until she finds it. And when she finds it, she and they rejoice because what was lost was found. But today this third in the trilogy of stories Jesus tells about lostness, It escalates, it means something because he's talking about a son. He's talking about a son. He's talking about a father who loses his son. And so it's all the more important. Last week when we looked at the shepherd losing the sheep and the woman losing the coin, we said that we get a couple things out of it as we understand Jesus' story. And one is that we get our why, like we get our why. There's only one why big enough to get you through all your hows. There's only one why big enough and noble enough, ennobling enough, inspiring enough to live for. Jesus said, I came. Why did you come, Jesus? I came to seek and to save those who are lost." Like it is central to who we are as followers of Jesus. To seek and to save. Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. I will make you disciples. You come. You follow. And you seek and save. And you bring your lostness. You return as a son and daughter who is wayward. And return to the Father and point others to me. We will. We're going to do it differently this morning. We'll close the service or at least the sermon part of the service by reading the full story Luke 15 11 to 32 since it's one of the most familiar stories globally universally I want us to just pull some phrases from it that are important and I believe insightful for us and then we'll read it together at the end we'll do it that way is that okay that messes with some of your categories but love me anyway okay I'm led of the Lord all right here we go he took a journey into a far country this is the younger son This gives us a word. It gives us something that I want to unpack today. It's the word longing. And the word longing is, it's just that expression of there's got to be more. Anybody in a place of discontent now or you've been there and you're just like, you're not happy. You're looking around and you're fidgety and you're fussing a little bit and you have that longing. There's got to be more. I don't know what it is, but it's not this. And in your worst moment, you look at someone that you live with and that you love, supposed to love, and you say, it's not this. It's something else. It's out there. We see this longing. This youngest son took a journey into a far country. In the movie Scarface, there's a a character. He's a Cuban refugee who is a drug king cartel leader. A man by the name of Tony Montana, played by Al Pacino. And he's riding in a convertible in the streets of Miami with his friend Manny. And Manny looks over at him in this convertible. And he says, be happy, be where you are. And Tony Montana Al Pacino looks at his friend Manny in this convertible and he says, you be happy. I want what's coming to me. What's coming to you, Tony? He says, the world and everything it offers, Chico, everything, everything in this world. And long before Scarface, Long before Al Pacino uttered those famous words in Hollywood history, Jesus tells a similar story in first century Palestine. This son basically says, like a lot of us, maybe you see yourself in the lost son. You see yourself in this part of the story where to fulfill your craving and your longing, you have to leave the father. You're not going to get what you want where you are. And he says, I'm going to go. I'm going to take this to a far country. And he says words that are missed on the hearing, hearing ears of 20th, 21st century listeners. He says, Give me the share of my property. Most translations in English render that, hey, I want my my inheritance, my part of the inheritance. I want it now. Give me the share of property. To a first century father, to the patriarch of the family on these, in this this era. It was very insulting. It was akin to spitting or slapping a man, a patriarch, in the face. For a son was to stay. A son was not to ask for his inheritance until the father was dead. And in the father's old age, the son was to be there to care for him when he needed him the most. And then, and only then, there was the inheritance. And this young son with his Tony Montana Al Pacino longing of give me the world and everything in it, he says, I want this inheritance, and I want it now. And to that, he goes. And Jesus, in this globally, universally famous story, says this phrase, this son squandered his property in reckless living. If the story was told today, I think the son would go to Nashville or Las Vegas or Amsterdam, and it would be about wine and women and song. It would be about sexual ecstasy. It would be about drunkenness. I want to go and I want to do things, I want to do things my way. A famous philosopher put it this way. Maybe you've heard this. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. I believe that is true. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. You and I have felt needs When I was young, I learned, maybe some of you did, about Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Anybody remember this? There's the pyramid and there's food and air and water. He put sexuality up there, self-actualization. Like we have this pyramid and when basic, rudimentary, fundamental, primal needs are met, we move up the pyramid and we want other needs to be met. Meet my needs for respect. I want to walk in the room and be self-actualized based on you, right? Help me, validate me. These are felt needs that you and I have and they're there. And they drive us, and so we suppress them, but they're very real. And we move, we live, we have our being with these felt needs, but every felt need points us to a Jesus need. Blaise Pascal, the famous French mathematician philosopher, put it this way, there is within every heart, you've heard this, a God-shaped vacuum that only he can fill. When a man knocks on the door of a brothel, when a young son goes and squanders his father's property, he lives his entire state and reckless living, he is searching, still searching for something that only God can do. That a need that only God can meet beyond the felt needs, there's the very real need. I don't know if anybody in the room would recognize this name, Glenn Wolfe. Glenn Wolf is an American record holder. He holds the record in American history for number of marriages. Ready for it? 29 his longest marriage lasted seven years good job glenn his shortest was 19 days the son from one of the sons from his 14th marriage was asked why did your dad keep remarrying he said i think he was picky (laughs) i would say he's pathological but we'll go with picky right he just kept he would he would return he would return what's strange really alien to me uh, was that he was you ready for this he was a baptist minister in California, babe, that explains that part, but I don't get the I don't get the other part of that equation. But he kept returning. It 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 it's more than picky, it's pathological. But you know what? It's that that's in you. That's in me. Love that you give is not return. A marriage that you were in that you were in ends in divorce. A friend that you Once loved and cared for and were close with, rejected you, alienated you, betrayed you, but you returned. You don't give up on marriage. You don't give up on love. You don't give up on friendship. There is a longing in us, and that longing says there's got to be more, and I'm going to go toward that like a moth to a flame. I'm going to my longing. I'm going to that need, that longing and craving for love. I need it to be filled, and this young man, again, today, he would be in Nashville or Vegas or L.A. or Amsterdam or somewhere but through reckless living, he was knocking on the door of brothel after brothel looking for this love. And I love this next phrase. is really good. It says that when he came to himself, which is another big word in this story I want to give you. The first one was longing. There's got to be more. The second big word, big idea is the word regret. I wish I could start over. Most versions of your bibles say that the young son when he came to his senses in other words this just wasn't an intellectual or cognitive thing like that he was really affected down deep when's the last time you've come to your senses when's the last time where just every part of you touch taste smell hearing every part your senses like you, you were affected and you were moved he came to his senses he came to himself he experienced regret I envision it, him waking up and a lady had left and in the middle of the night and he's in his bed and he looks at that master bathroom mirror and there's lipstick with a number on it, but he's empty. It started out, it was free, father's money. It was fun. It was fabulous. And then the lights began to flicker. The parties were fading he felt empty and the life that he had wanted he now hated and Jesus tells us this story I believe because we on a day like today would have a room full of people who the life that they wanted they now hated Jesus talks about life he came to seek and to save the lost he came to bring life in John ten ten, these are famous words You don't really have to be a churchgoer to know that Jesus said this, I come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. He draws a contrast in the whole verse. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. Now in the the Greeks, when they spoke life, when they used the word life, they had two meanings. Here they are. One was bios and one is Zoe. Bios is chronological natural life. That is Uh, The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, that's every living creature that crawls on the ground. That is you and me. It is life, and it's a span of 70 to 80 years for most of us. For my grandmother, Mavis, it's 100 and counting. But this is just chronology. This is, you know, you, you can do those studies that, you know, you, you sleep blank many hours in your life. You go to the bathroom blank many hours. You waste time in traffic blank many hours. You, you, there's a chronology to it, and you can do these things over and over again. You have your routines and rituals and rhythms, and you live this way. It is bios. It's natural chronological life. It is temporal It is here and it is now. There's another word the Greeks used for life, and it is this one, zoe. And it's not quantity as much as it is quality. It's not temporal as much as it is eternal. And which word do you guess, church, Jesus used when he spoke about life? When he spoke about the life that he came to give? He spoke of zoe. He spoke of the life that is eternal, the life that is rich and abundant. And this story that Jesus tells, remember his purpose is to come. In coming is to seek and save the lost. And he gives us this trilogy of stories about the lost and about them being found. And in this story, there's rejoicing when they're found. And there's life. And there's life Jesus wants us to know when we stop, when we admit, when we come to our senses. When we get to a place where we realize the life, oh, the life I wanted is now the life that I'm hating. And you could be there. And God uses—I teach this a lot—but God uses fear and God uses pain to bring change. Let's don't look past this because some of you are, econom- you know, you're into economics and math. And this guy came to his senses after he was in ap- after he was in a pigsty, after he was broke, and financial woes sure can get your attention, can't they? When all your bills are paid, when money's in the bank and it's piling up, when the kids are doing everything you say, when your spouse is doing everything you say, when the guy calls or that cute girl uh, gives you her number, when your teeth are white, when things are going your way, it's easy to forget about God. But when we're hating our life and we're in a pig pen, and when we're empty and when we're broke is when we're most likely to change. I love this next phrase in this story. I will arise and go. Now, we don't talk like that. No one says that. You're not going to be sitting around the house tonight and go from point A to point B and look at your roommate or spouse and say, I will arise and go. But in this, we see that this young son in Jesus' story takes notice. He's come to the end of himself. He's come to his senses and he says, enough. Enough. Now listen, he's starting to separate himself from some of you. Because some of you, you know you're in a mess. You know the life that you're now living, is, it just doesn't seem worth living. But you're not willing to do something about it. His love always initiates. Scripture teaches us that we love because he first loved us. You're going to hear a little bit of Reformed theology right now. You can sense it, but like you can't just come to God. He's got to draw you to Himself, and His love does that. His love draws you. It draws me in. His love has to go first, but you have to respond. You have to do something about it. I will arise, and I will go. There is a powerful word that's not just for religious people. It's for every human who wants to grow and flourish, this word repentance is a valuable one it flows from the greeks this word i want to put it up metanoia and you see two parts of that word you see the last part noia is mind and the meta part you may know is change have you ever been through a metamorphosis there's a change there's something happens it's not a tweak it's not a slight alteration it's 180. it's a major deal metanoia and this Young son in Jesus' story has a metanoia. He has a moment where he changes his mind. I will rise up and I will go. I'm tired of the mess that I have made. I want to do something about it. And I want to run to the one who can do something about it. How important is that? To go to the one who can. It, comes, it puts us to a place where this the third word that I want to draw out. The first was longing. There's got to be more. The second word was regret. I want to start over. And the third word that I want to pull out of this story from these important phrases is the word help. I will rise and I will go to my Father. I will go to the Father. Hear me now. You can help me. I can help you. We can help we. We can help each other. And we ought to. there are times when there's only one place to turn. I will rise and I will go not to a friend late into the night. I will rise and I will go not to social media or something to deaden the pain, to help me overcome this, to numb and quiet the voices that I hear, but I will go to the Father. I will go to the one who provides and promises Zoe to the life that is worth living. I will go to him for he is my help. When I was little, my parents maybe listened to the Beatles. And then later I was glad they did. And the Beatles, you'll remember, sang a song: Help, I need help. Help somebody. Help, not just anybody. And that is true of this. The young man says, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to my father who will be my help. It's difficult to admit help. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have difficulty saying help? There's a whole gender. I see a young lady's hand over here. There's a whole gender in the room that has a lot of difficulty asking for help. 25 years ago, I was tasked with picking up an important speaker at a conference. He was the keynote speaker I was emceeing this conference in Atlanta. There were 3,000 plus students and staff there with different campus ministries and this speaker was really important. In fact, the reason there were thousands of people there, I think in large part was because of this speaker. He was famous and he was from Dartmouth and I went to Mississippi State. And he was just really like he had a British accent. And if you know anybody with a British accent, like your IQ plummets about 20 points when you're around them. And I was charged with picking him up. And I just thought, I, when I pick him up, I don't want to seem dumb. I want him to like me. And I want him to think that I'm smart. And the conference was 15 miles from the airport. And after about an hour of driving around, he said in his condescending British accent, might we be lost? <laughs> and in that moment, I was faced with a choice. I could admit. I could come clean. I could be honest. I could say I'm lost. Or I could try to wiggle my way around this. And I'm glad to tell you, I chose to come clean 25 years later in this sermon. He's dead as a doornail. I hope he never knows. But you know, I know in there are moments in my life where I will be as stubborn as a sheep because I don't want anybody to know I don't know my way. I mean stubborn and don't say amen. But I'm not alone. And men, fellas, help is a small word. It's a simple word. And it takes far more courage to say help than it does to deny and act like that you don't need it. And Metanoia, let me go back a minute, when he said, I will arise and I will go to my Father. He's saying, let me say, he's saying I will go to the Father who is my helper. The first sermon ever preached at Fondren Church was 150 yards that way in Auditorium at Dueling Hall. We had a couple of vision nights. We didn't know what we were doing. We still don't. But in this this first time, we were like, man, we're having church. Sunday night. Sunday night church. That's what we did. And we preached a sermon from Psalm 121, a psalm of ascension. This was 2011. A movie was out called The Help. See how trendy, hip, and cool I am? And so I did the first sermon from Fondren right across from Brent's Drugs. And I said, hey, you've all seen The Help, but let me tell you the real help. I'm gifted. Like, y'all can't do this. Only I can do this stuff. Only me. And I pointed to Psalm 121, I look to the hills and where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And this young son, Jesus tells us, had to have metanoia. He had to have a turning point. Have you ever had a turning point? A turning point where vocationally, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, you learn something and you said, because of what I learned, I've got to change this. In my life when I was a youngster I was running cross-country never been a good athlete I know that surprises some of you but I was running I had a chance to to win this this meet and I remember my coach and his words he was like a drill sergeant a drill sergeant who loved me and he he was on me, and he's like, Robert, you got to learn to push through pain, push through pain. You can achieve more if you push through pain. And on this particular day, I ran and I won. That hadn't happened since, but it's helped me in life. It was a turning point for me to say, hey, this is hard and this hurts. But there's something on the other side if I keep going. It was a turning point for me. Metanoia. It's helped me change my mind. When my first son, my first kid was born, I held them up. And I had this realization that I've got to grow up. And I've got to come a, become a man. And to quote one of my favorite writers, to be a man, you've got to reject passivity. You've got to accept responsibility. And you've got to live courageously. And so much of my life was lived selfishly up to that point. But I held my son, who's a freshman in college and very expensive right now. And I said, I must grow up. When we lived in San Diego, I had gotten in over my head and I drugged her with me. We were raising money and setting up an office and partnering with churches and developing a staff team, starting a family. The circuit was overloaded and I was flat on my back and I was sick. That rarely happens in my world these days, but I was sick and on my back I realized I had limits and I can only do so much and it was a turning point for me and every day today these days, when I defer something or I delegate something or ask one of our staff or charge somebody to help me, I go back to that turning point that I can only do so much. And I'm learning that the Lord is my help. I look to him. He is the one. It is him. So I want to close. We've got a few more minutes. Stay with me. This son, he goes to the Father. And in this son's heart, imagine insulting the man who gave you life, squandering and going back. And in this son's heart, he needed to hear the word yes. Some of you, you need to hear the word yes. Because no hurts. And no has a cumulative effect in our lives there's a book by a, a guy who's supposedly an expert in spirituality and neurology he's written a book called the worst Wor- worst word in the world and it's that word no so he says alan newberg he says i can put you in a mri scan and i can flash the word no and in just one second Stress-producing hormones and neurotransmitters will, will flow through your body and it will impair your logic and your communication, your ability to perceive and to remember. And those who are already having high levels of anxiety and depression will feel worse. No affects your happiness, your satisfaction, your overall well-being, your ability to have an appetite, your ability to sleep one after the other. No can be so damaging. This son was so afraid. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy that he was going to hear the word no. Some of you have heard no. Your mama told you no. Your dad said no. The college said no. The career said no. The job, the boss said no to you. And look, sometimes some people will say no. You will hear the word no. The IRS will say no. No. Your dog will say no. Your cat will definitely say no. And there's only so much that you can take. Look at what one of the chief early followers of Jesus said. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are, say it, in Christ. So, you know, when you preach a sermon, you study for the sermon, how many promises are in the Bible? You ready for this? I'm glad you're sitting down. 7,457 promises. You make any promises? You keep them? God made 7,457. Now they're not our promises for our lives. They're his promises. And in Jesus, Every single one of them is yes. Can I come home? Yes. Will you forgive me? Yes. It's hard, Lord, and it hurts. Will you heal me and bring me peace? Yes. Will you restore what has been broken? Yes. Every promise in Jesus is yes. So would you stand with me? And I want to lead us, I want to read this story as we close. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father saw the boy that he once held. He saw the toddler that took his first steps. He saw the boy that he prayed over. He saw the young man that he feared would never come home. He ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. A lot of cultural things that we don't get here. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. And we're not preaching this today about the older son. Swayze Waters was in the 930 service and I mentioned Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God. Swayze's reading that right now. I'd recommend that. He talks about the elder brother, and some of us are the elder brother. And they began to celebrate. This older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. Anybody bitter toward God? That I might celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours came, notice the detachment and the bitterness. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he was found. That's the story. That's the story. The story of God's heart. So today we're going to sing and we're going to open up the altar and we would love for you to pray. I know proud people don't want to go forward. Proud people don't want to be prayed for. Several months ago, I prayed for a a good friend. I'm not going to mention his name. He's here now. And he came forward, and I I embraced him, and we prayed together. And the next day, he took me to lunch. That's not a a requirement if you come down and pray. The next day, he took me to lunch. He goes, Robert, man, you smelled good yesterday. Like, you just smelled good. And I thought, man, this guy is really spiritual. I'm praying for him, and God's working. And he was concerned about my cologne. But look, let's give God a a few minutes today. We're going to go just a few minutes over. We're going to wrap up pretty quickly. But let's give God this time... This altar is open and some of us are down front to pray for you. And you pray for me and you pray for our church to get the gospel, to care for the lost.